Hello everybody and welcome back to Season 3 of Sequelizers. This is a show all about fixing the bad sequels to good movies. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular Sequelizers. We have the team of More Ghosts Vicar, which is Tim Matum. Hello. And Matthew Stockton. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I felt like I going to do one. <laughs> oh, we're so quirky. They're so thematic. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the team of I ain't afraid of no geist. Alec Plowman. <laughs> <laughs> He's taking a turn, ladies and gentlemen. A little bit of a turn. And Stuart Ashen. Hello. Ah, so last week we discussed how terrible Poltergeist 2 is and was. Still is, yeah. Still and is, always yeah. It remains, will always will be. Always will be yeah. There's no fixing that shit. Exactly. Oh, wait. <laughs> premise or of the show <laughs> oh shit it's almost I like set the table that's we're exactly going why we're here <laughs> yeah. so you four gentlemen are going to try and fix Poltergeist 2 godspeed to you all because you're starting with dog shit and oh. I, I, like I said in part one I assume you guys have just scrapped the whole thing because it's such garbage anyway let's kick off with I ain't afraid of no geist shall we Remind us of your cast, crew, title, and elevator pitch, please, sirs. Certainly. It is Poltergeist to the Assembly, assembled in 1986, and directed by Steven Spielberg, George A. Romero, and John Landis. Our cast, Diane Freeling, Joe Beth Williams, Pat Gardner, Nancy Allen, Bruce Gardner, Robert Hayes, Camilla Gardner, Drew Barrymore, Vanessa Amos, Angela Bassett. I feel like I'm reading football scores. <laughs> um, Queen of the South. Angela Drew Barrymore, nil. I like yeah. we all did that. <laughs> Vanessa Ames, Angela Bassett, Monica Ames, Tatiana Ali, Brian Norse, John Lithgow, Justin Norse, Macaulay Culkin, Dr. Chalice, David Cronenberg, Reverend Harry Kane, Julian Beck, The Shattered Man, Doug Bradley, Anita Tilda Swinton. Score by Jerry Goldsmith. And if you were in an elevator and wanted to quickly hear what the movie was about, I would say, after hours in a school in Southern California, four people recount their tales of supernatural kidnapping attempts suffered by their children. So, this is an anthology film, and the linking material, although credited to Steven Spielberg, is actually directed by Toby Hooper. (laughs) (laughs) We open on a brief montage of unholy events from the original Poltergeist film. The hand from the television, the bizarre skeletal dog creature, the clown doll, everyone screaming. It becomes clear that these flashbacks represent Diane Freeling telling the story to a group of people sitting in a circle of chairs in a school hall after hours. Listening are Pat and Bruce Gardner, a slightly overdressed and clearly wealthy couple, Vanessa Ames, a young woman dressed fashionably for the time, and Brian Norse, a man in his mid-forties wearing an old sweater and jeans. Also present and listening intently is Dr. Chalice, a slightly creepy psychologist. Everyone is astonished by Diane's story, and Dr. Chalice thanks her for her contribution. He asks the gardeners if they would like to tell their story next. As they begin to tell their tale, the room fades out, and we see it enacted. Okay, so the director of this segment is John Landis. The gardeners live in a state-of-the-art tower block in a very well-to-do area with their daughter Camilla. Bruce has just returned from a business trip to Iraq with a large mirror in an ornate frame as a gift for his wife Pat. 
Whilst the apartment is large and opulently furnished, she feels that it is too dark and wants to move. Bruce loves the high-tech building and has filled the house with mirrors to increase the light level as a form of compromise. They replace a standard mirror in the hallway with the new one. During the night, Camilla is woken by a voice calling out her name. It seems to be coming from the mirror in her room. As she looks at her own reflection, it waves and smiles to her. She reaches out to touch it, but before her hand touches the mirror, her reflection is pushed out of the way by a larger figure. Before we get a good look at it, the camera cuts to Camilla, who screams and runs into her parents' room. She tells them that there is a scary man in her mirror. They say it was just a nightmare and let her sleep in their bed. In the morning, Pat puts on makeup in the bedroom whilst Bruce shaves in the ensuite. Camilla is watching TV in the living room. Pat is distracted from her mascara application by seeing things darting about in the corners of the mirror. Bruce is confused by his reflection still having stubble after he shaved his actual face. And Camilla is fixated on the TV, not noticing two versions of her appearing in the twin mirrors either side of the room. Suddenly, Pat is grabbed by hands reaching out from the mirror, pulling her face against the glass. Bruce's reflection smiles evilly as it reaches out and begins to strangle him. Camilla's twin reflections begin to crawl out of the mirror towards her, connected to the mirrors by translucent thread. Bruce attempts to smash the mirror with a can of hairspray, but it will not break. Pat manages to push her mirror off the dresser and breaks free. She runs into the ensuite as the mirror runs toward her, using the hands as freakish legs. She kicks it across the room and it shatters on the wall. Camilla screams as one of the reflections grabs her and starts to drag her back to the mirror as the other walks to shut the door. Pat and Bruce manage to break the mirror together just as a tall figure appears behind his reflection. They run for Camilla, and every mirror they pass has reversed versions of themselves reaching out. They reach the living room just as the door closes. Bruce kicks it open, and it flies into the evil reflection of Camilla, which shatters along with the mirror it was connected to. But they appear to be too late. Camilla is being dragged screaming into the remaining mirror whilst a terrifying figure stands waiting in it. It is a tall, thin man with a face shattered into divergent shards like a broken mirror. He turns to look at them and points towards the hallway as they run over. He then pushes Camilla, who is freed from the mirror just before being completely taken. Pat grabs her as Bruce smashes the mirror with a lamp. The three attempt to leave the apartment, but are trapped in the hallway by evil reflections of themselves that have escaped the mirrors. Pat attempts to smash them using a tall lamp, but they take it from her. They end up in front of the mirror from a rack, from which the shattered man beckons to Bruce. As the reflections close in to take Camilla, Bruce puts his hand in the mirror, and the shattered man takes his hand and drags him in. In the twisting, blue-tinged mirror dimension, Bruce can see hundreds of evil reversed versions of himself running towards him and the shattered man. The man whispers, I cannot stop them much longer. Take me with you. I cannot go through alone. Bruce is hesitant until he realises the reflections are all screaming traitor. He grabs the shattered man's other arm and pulls him through the mirror. Bruce and the man collapse into the hallway. The reflections begin to scream and explode into shards of glass along with all the mirrors except the Iraq gift. The shattered man himself whispers, thank you for giving me peace, and fades away as Bruce holds him. The family are left in front of the ornate mirror, which is now just a sheet of plain glass showing the back of the frame. Back in the school, Dr. Chalice is fascinated by the story. He asks if there were any further repercussions, but the gardeners respond that everything has been normal since, and that they've moved into a house elsewhere. He asks how Camilla is doing. They say not well and he says that's something he can possibly help with later. He asks Vanessa to tell her story. This segment directed by George A. Romero. 
Vanessa Ames has picked her daughter Monica up from the school and has popped to the grocery store on the way back. As they take their shopping back to the car, their attention is taken by a skeletal old man dressed as an old-school preacher staring at them from across the car park. He smiles and waves, and Monica warily waves back. At home, Monica is playing in the front garden when the preacher appears nearby, walking along the road and singing a hymn. It suddenly begins to rain, but Monica seems transfixed by the man and does not go inside, even as he starts to walk up their drive. Vanessa notices the rain and runs outside to get Monica, and is shocked to see the preacher so close to the house. He introduces himself in an eerie sing-song voice as the Reverend Henry Kane, and engages her in conversation. Monica is clearly troubled by his presence. Kane begins the conversation cordially, but becomes increasingly intense. He says that Monica is in danger, and that she should attend one of his sermons. Vanessa replies that their spiritual needs are taken care of, but Kane begins shouting that they are worshipping falsely, and that Monica should go with him now. Vanessa runs inside and locks the door. Kane calms down, saying he only has their interests at heart. He asks if he can come in to talk to them, just for a little while. He pleads with them and says he can't come in unless they invite him. Vanessa tells him to leave before she calls the police. He walks away, saying that his flock will find a way to save Monica. Later that evening, night falls, and Vanessa tells Monica to get ready for bed. As the girl walks up the stairs, she sees an indistinct figure slowly moving in the garden towards the house. She calls her mother, who joins her at the window. She realises something is wrong and runs downstairs to check the doors are locked, but she bolts back in terror as the face of Henry Kane appears in the glass at the back door. It's for her own good. Send her out or my brethren are coming in, he says, and gestures his arms wide. Vanessa sees that the figure from earlier is inhumanly pale with sunken eyes and that there are more of them surrounding the house. She runs to get Monica and then runs to the phone to discover the line is dead. Kane's undead followers attack the house, breaking in through windows and smashing at the door whilst Kane sings in the background. Vanessa puts up a fierce fight, blocking the windows and doors with furniture as she moves from room to room after shutting Monica in the cupboard under the stairs. She wields a hockey stick and manages to beat back several of the attackers, but she is eventually overcome and is surrounded in front of the door to the cupboard. Kane tells his followers not to hurt Vanessa, but to bring the child to him. But as they grab Vanessa and pin her down, Kane's attention is taken by a man running up to him. It is the Reverend John Ames, Vanessa's husband and Monica's father, returning home from his day at the church. He confronts Kane and screams at him to leave his family alone. Kane responds that he is saving the girl and that he is a man of God too. But before he can say his name, John says he knows who he is. He says there's not a single person at the church who doesn't know the name Henry Kane and the way he abused his power and the shame he brought on the town before he was hanged for his crimes. Kane stares for a second before smiling wide and telling his followers to attack John. John addresses Kane's flock, telling them that he doesn't know who they are or why they follow Kane, but they must know that they are doing wrong. He says that whatever Cain promised them is a lie, just as he lied and abused his power during his life. Some of the flock hesitate for a second, which immediately causes Cain's smile to disappear, and for him to start screaming at them to obey him. John points out that Cain is a tyrant, a twisted bully hiding behind religion, and that their obedience is his only power. If his followers ever want peace, they must stop. The flock stop and stare at Cain, then start walking towards him. He becomes fearful and angry, shrieking at them to stay away from him. His weakness revealed, the followers simply walk away and fade into the night. As each of them leaves, Cain himself fades a little. He shrieks for them to come back, but he collapses onto his knees and fades into a dark mass which disappears into itself. John joins his family in the damaged house, and they hug each other tight.
Back in the school, Dr. Chalice asks if they think that Cain is connected to the beast from Diane's story. Nobody knows, but they agree that the way that each entity seeks to take a child is similar. Diane points out that Chalice is believing all these stories very easily, which is rare, particularly for an academic. He smiles, and replies that he has some experience of the supernatural himself, which is what makes him uniquely placed to help their children. He asks Brian to tell his story. And this segment is directed by Steven Spielberg. After the death of his wife, Brian Norse took a new job and moved to a new house with his young son Justin to escape painful memories. But the move has left Justin far from his friends, and alone a lot of the time, as Brian works until 6pm. To ease the transition, Brian says that Justin is allowed to talk to his old friends on the phone as much as he likes. At first this works well, but as summer draws on, the children play outside more and aren't so keen to talk. Justin doesn't seem to be making new friends at school, and Brian becomes worried that he's becoming withdrawn. One day, Brian returns home from work to find Justin smiling and talking on the phone. He waves to him and is happy to see him smiling again. As the week goes on, the calls become more frequent, to the extent that Justin is spending all his time on the phone and is reluctant to hang out for meals. It comes to a head when Brian gets up for some water and finds Justin talking on the phone at 3am. He takes the phone from him, but hears nothing on the other end. He hangs up and asks Justin which friend that was, and if his parents know that he's up at 3am. Justin replies that it wasn't one of his old friends, it was Anita. Anita is a nice lady that talks to him and makes him feel better. Concerned, Brian tells Justin to go to sleep. The next morning, Brian attempts to call his parents to talk to them about Justin, but there is no dial tone. He checks outside the house and discovers that the phone line runs along the ground before going up the pole, and that it's been cut. He realises that he must have run over it with a lawnmower last week, which not only explains why he hasn't received any calls, but shows that Justin must have created an imaginary friend. Somewhat relieved, he goes back inside to talk to his son. Justin says that Anita is very kind, but also very lonely. He says that she used to have a daughter, but had to leave her, and has been waiting for her for a very long time. She wants Justin to go and live with her. Brian hugs him and says that he knows he misses his mother, but that nobody can ever take the place of her. Justin says he knows, but that he really does miss his mother terribly. Upset, Brian walks to the living room and sits down. He begins to cry and sniffles, causing himself to sneeze. Immediately, the telephone rings next to him. He picks it up and a female voice says, Bless you. Terrified, Brian asks who this is as he looks out of the window at the cut phone line. The voice replies that she is Anita, and that she will take good care of Justin, and that she will love him as her own. He realises that this is a diversion, and runs upstairs calling his son's name. Justin is not in the room. Brian notices that the door to the attic is ajar and runs up there. He cannot see anything except for the luggage and storage boxes he put there himself. He calls out for his son, and notices a panel in one of the walls has been removed, revealing a hole which seems to be emitting light. He runs over and crawls through. He is amazed by what he sees. One of the walls is composed entirely of pale blue light, and the ethereal figure of a woman, Anita, floats behind it. She is beckoning to Justin, who is standing right against it. He reaches forward and screams for his son, but Justin turns around and says, Don't worry, Daddy, I'm not going. Anita looks down, confused. Justin looks up and says, Thank you for being kind to me, but I cannot go and live with you, because then my daddy would be all on his own. I'm sorry that you're sad, but I promise to come and see you some day. Anita is heartbroken and looks around in despair. Her eyes meet Brian's, who simply says, You can't take someone else's child. Slowly, she nods at him, 
looks down and smiles at Justin. She disappears into the distance and the wall fades into normality. As Brian goes over to his son, the camera focuses on a trunk in the corner of the room. Sitting on top is a framed photo of Anita and her daughter, dressed in clothes from the late 1920s. Back in the school, Dr Chalice remarks on how wise young Justin is and how lucky everyone's children were to escape their unholy tormentors. He sets out his plan to provide all their children with free therapy at a weekend retreat in the hopes that they can move past the horror of the traumatic events they lived through. Diane replies that he must think they're stupid. He asks what she means, and she replies that none of them would have ever let their children into danger again, and she then asks how Chalice knew that each of them had suffered a supernatural attack. He says that it's not hard to see the signs if you know what to look for. A vanishing house, a noisy attack at night, reports of an assault by strange pale people. But Brian says there was no evidence of his experience, and he's never told anyone official. Chalice pauses, then asks why they all came here in that case. Diane says that they contacted each other after Chalice's initial approach, and that they had to wait until late at night before making their move to protect their children. Chalice laughs and asks what they plan to do, but is interrupted by the doors being locked from the inside. He turns to see the psychic Tangina Barons, <laughs> Stephen Freeling and the Reverend John Ames walking towards him carrying bags of equipment. Tangina tells him that they know exactly what to do, and we cut to black as the credits roll. Mm. Time to go over to more ghosts, Vicar, with your reminder, elevator pitch, title, cast, crew, all that good stuff, please, sirs. Our film is called Poltergeist Twilight, released in the year 1990, directed by Steven Spielberg and Akira Kurosawa. We have, as our cast, we have no one from the original. As our new cast, we have Brian Cranston as Bob Franklin, Gina Davis as Jeannie Franklin, Brian Dennehy as John Ryerson, Matthew Modine as Hank Ryerson, Will Wheaton as Pete Ryerson, James Hong as Lou Tang, Lauren Bacall as Jemima Tang, Frank Langella as Steve Hubbock, Maureen O'Hara as Mrs. Rourke, David Carradine as Dick Graves, and Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa as Hasegawa. And the composer for our score is Bill Conti. Our elevator pitch is as follows. Residents of a San Francisco apartment complex find themselves trapped as an array of Japanese ghosts are unleashed to torment them. Should we delve into your pitch? Let's. It's moving day for young couple Bob and Jeannie Franklin. A van full of possessions is parked outside a San Francisco apartment building, and the estate agent apologises for the noisy construction work, explaining the pool is not finished yet, before handing over the keys and leaving the couple to celebrate moving into their new home. Outside the complex, Hank Ryerson is sitting in his car with his teenage son, Pete. The pair are silent, and it's clear neither of them wants to be there. Hank finally speaks, but it quickly turns into an argument about not wanting to see Hank's father, John. Pete says that the whole visit feels like some sort of punishment and storms off. Sitting alone, Hank mutters that he feels the same way. As they make their way inside, there is an awkward moment between the movers and the construction workers over where to appropriately park their vehicles, leading to a forklift truck reversing into the pit of the pool, cracking a container beneath the foundation in the process. John opens his door to reveal his son and grandson. They all share a lack of enthusiasm for the visit. Ignoring his grandfather, Pete produces a Game Boy and entrenches himself by the window. John makes a snide remark about boys playing outside, which escalates into a full-blown fight between father and son. 
The argument reveals that Hank works for a company whose advancements in engineering put John, a labourer, out of a job. John feels the apartment is merely guilt trip compensation, and that Hank is merely checking in on his investment. On another floor, Bob is exploring the building, but quietly retreats when he witnesses an elderly resident, Mrs. Rourke, shouting at Lou and Jemima Tang, an older interracial couple. Bob steps backward only to notice an open door with jazz music drifting softly out. Inviting himself in, he introduces himself to the occupant, artist Dick Graves, who is staring intensely at a blank canvas. After the introduction, Jeannie finds her husband, asking if he's seen the fight in the corridor, and the couple share a drink with Graves, grateful they've made a new friend. As night falls, Hank and Pete come down to the lobby to find several disgruntled residents speaking to Steve Hubbock, the building manager. For some reason, no one has been able to leave the building. Hank, an engineer, takes a look at the door, but can't find a logical reason for them to be locked. A rather inebriated Mrs Rourke suggests it's all computers, prompting Pete to make an offhand disrespectful remark. Hank snaps at his son's rudeness before Pete lashes out and runs off upstairs. In his room, Graves is painting intensely. Stepping back from the canvas, he grimaces at his creation. We are shown a point of view shot as two floating purple flames flicker at either side of the screen before Graves turns and is thrown from the building, careening out of the window and to his death. The death of their fellow resident on the other side of the glass shocks and traumatises several people in the lobby, including an elderly man who passes out. Hasegawa, the unconscious man's grandson, asks for help. As people rally to the old man, several other residents appear in the lobby, including a shook genie who appears with Graves' canvas. The group witnessed the haunting Bacon-esque image of an Asian woman in a white robe, her long dark hair covering her face. Noticing characters etched down the side, everyone turns to Tang for answers, but his wife explains he is Chinese and those are Japanese characters. (laughs) (laughs) You fucking racists. (laughs) (laughs) The slow burn tension is disrupted as Hubbock hurls a metal chair at the glass but is unable to break it. Another resident relays that the phone lines are dead too. Hank rationalises that it's probably just an effect of the construction work. As this is a new building, the foundation could be settling and may have put pressure on the door, which is why it isn't opening. Mrs. Tang and Rourke agree that sounds like bullshit before several individuals disperse, heading back to their homes. Pete arrives at his grandfather's room and sitting on the floor, bangs his head against the wall. On the other side of the door, John slowly sits himself down and the two have a conversation through the closed door. This is cut short as Pete sees a terrifying spectre drifting out of one of the rooms. The sight of the young woman, with her long black dishevelled hair, white burial kimono and stark white face, paralyses Pete. John rushes to open the door but finds Pete gone. A creaking noise emanates from the figure as she drifts away, followed by Pete's screams echoing the corridor. John calls out and the vision turns unnaturally. Suddenly, two hovering blue flames appear and shoot down the corridor toward the old man. Terrified, John rushes to the stairwell and down the stairs, hotly pursued by the now screeching entity. We cut to Bob and Jeannie in their apartment. Bob, with a toothbrush in his mouth, steps out of the bathroom and sees a fox sitting on their bed, which seems to transfix him. Jeannie enters the room and Bob turns and snarls at her, his face distorted and mouth foaming for a moment. At the same time, Mrs Rourke is travelling upstairs in the elevator, which starts to malfunction. As the lights flicker, ghostly figures appear behind her. Reaching up, Mrs Rourke feels a crown of dripping candles affixed to her head. Down in the lobby, the lift arrives, and a wax-covered Mrs Rourke falls out and shatters across the floor. 
John reunites with Hank in the lobby, relaying what he saw and apologising that Pete is missing. Hasegawa, nursing his grandfather, tells the remaining group members of Onryo, vengeful Uriai or ghosts. Despite what has happened, Hank doesn't believe in ghosts and argues why would Japanese ghosts appear in America. As Hasegawa places a damp cloth on his grandfather's head, he mournfully explains about his grandfather's time in an internment camp during World War II. Hubbock assumes he means somewhere abroad, but John explains this would have been on US soil. John recounts the levels of prejudice and war hysteria at the times, and ashamedly reminisces about defacing a Tory gate when he was a child. Hasegawa is explaining what a Tory gate is and how it signifies an entrance to a shrine and represents transition from the mundane to the sacred when his grandfather wakes suddenly. Brought up to speed, the frail man talks about an old children's game relating to ghosts, where a group of people would position a mirror in a separate room, tell ghost stories, then extinguish several lanterns until the room was in darkness, keeping an eye on the reflection as they exit the room, lest any spirits cross over. Upstairs, a now normal Bob is trying to calm Jeannie when they bump into the Tangs. They discuss the terrifying things they have seen and agree to head to the lobby together. As they pass Graves' room, Jeannie looks again at the shattered window and stifles a whimper. Back in the lobby, the group have set up several candles and placed a mirror on a table in a neighbouring office in an effort to communicate with the spirits. Rather than ghost stories, they recount the grim sights and experiences that took place during the most recent military conflicts, World War II, Korea and Vietnam. Hank goes to blow out one of the candles, but spots his son in the reflection, dressed in a white kimono, sitting among the others. He looks back, but sees nothing. Calling out, Hank pleads with Pete, only to see a spectral figure in the reflection drift over, play with Pete's hair, and then violently force his hand into Hubbock's chest. In the lobby, Hubbock seemingly levitates on his own before his lifeless body is tossed against a wall. As the Franklins and Tangs arrive, Hasegawa's grandfather drifts into Japanese, and Hasegawa translates that there must be something sacred here, something that has been disturbed, which must be purified by fire. Through conversation, the group tried to retrace the steps of the day before realising that the construction must have excavated something. Jemima tells the group that it's a moot point, as they can't get out of the building. In that moment, Jeannie remembers the smash window in Graves' room, positing that maybe the ghosts are the only ones who can seal or break means of exit. Hank immediately volunteers to descend the four-storey drop. John says he will accompany him, stating he couldn't protect Pete, but he will damn sure get him back. The group navigate their way upstairs, struggling as the corridors warp into a maze filled with shadowy versions of themselves. After an arduous trek, they source a fire hose and arrive in Graves' room. Lou ties the hose around a bedpost and Bob steadies it while John and Hank make their way down the building. A fog has blanketed the site and visibility is poor. Cautiously making their way through the construction site, John finds the disrupted forklift and quietly beckons his son over. They see a simple wooden box, broken by the impact, but cannot unearth it. John explains he can operate the forklift, but the noise will alert the spirits, and Hank will need to make a run for it. The two bicker quietly before John explains this is how it has to be. The two men make their peace, and John starts the engine, allowing Hank to get back to the hose with the box. Staring into the fog, John spins wildly as figures in early 20th century military attire advance silently on his position. In the distance, John's screams echo. Bob pulls Hank up and the group make their way back to Hasegawa in the lobby. Hank hands the box to the Tangs and explains he will meet up with them. 
Bob and Jeannie try to talk sense into him, but he explains even if the curse is lifted, he still has to find his son. In the lobby, the ritual begins, and Hasegawa's grandfather weakly begins the incantation. Hank stumbles onto the fourth floor and sees Pete running along the ceiling, pursued by crawling ghosts. Hank tells Pete to jump, managing to catch him, and father and son descend the stairwell as the ghosts give chase, clambering down the walls. As the ritual nears completion, Bob's face once again becomes distorted and he attempts to attack Hasegawa's grandfather, but Jeannie and the Tangs fight him off. The possession fades as the ritual finishes, and throughout the building, windows shatter and the ground begins to shake. Hank and Pete emerge, and the remaining survivors run clear of the building. The fog is sucked in as the immense building collapses in on itself. The group watch as the dust begins to settle, and the only remaining section of the building is an ominous, twisted section of girders that have formed a Tory gate. Jemima sullenly muses, All of our possessions, our lives, it's all gone. We'll have to start all over again. Jeannie highlights this is probably how the interned citizens felt. The film fades to black with a series of title cards bearing statistics about those interred in camps before highlighting President Reagan signing a national apology in 1988. Roll credits. So back over to I Ain't Afraid of No Geist. Hello. I have a few questions for you gentlemen. Basically, my main one is, why an anthology? What was the what was the reasoning behind that? I'm I'm intrigued. It's not necessarily a negative. It's just a it's an intriguing concept to get those three people together to collaborate. And do you think you could stop them all from punching each other? I don't know. Uh, they're allowed <laughs> do, to the direct ego, do the egos mesh? Well, just... <laughs> Spielberg is playing his flute, and all will dance to his tune. <laughs> Particularly Toby Hooper. He's trying to sleep, but he's a man. <laughs> is Toby Hooper a Snorlax? Yes. You heard it here first. Or is he a ditto? We just don't know. <laughs> All of these guys do anthology things in the 80s and are fine for the most part. I love anthology films. That helped. I mean, there was a bit of a renaissance in the 80s with old Creep Show and Cat's Eye and many, many films of this type. Twilight Zone, the movie, of course, Landis there. Basically, that what it was for me really was that the first film is kind of, here's some cool images that we've not quite put together. So like, damn it, let's have the cool images and separate them out. As a way to get your short films put together. Well, you use the the after school stuff as kind of connective tissue to yeah, like because you do have in theory entirely separate imagery yeah, yes, and scenes. That's exactly. But you're using that as together. the connective tissue with Chalice and the whole thing in the school. I also think anthologies and ghost stories, ghost story collections. There is there's a history there, and it, it just seemed like this was a fitting thing. Because the idea as well, of course, within the poltergeist universe, it's quite clearly established in the first film that these are things that happen everywhere. This isn't just, there isn't just this this one time. It, it happens all the time. So as far as exploring that, we thought anthology is a fun way to do that. It's, it's uh, Poltergeist 2 and Poltergeist 3, very little good in them, especially Poltergeist 3. But we've got the couple of good images from it. What if you can take that, like the mirrors from uh, Poltergeist 3, which they never properly deal with, and Kane himself from the second one, and just do something short with them where that is the crux of the idea and the centre of it. Before they overstay their welcome kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes these ideas cannot be strong. You see this a lot, actually. Um, a recent trend has been, we've made a sh- cool three-minute horror film. Okay, that's amazing. We will now option this for a 90-minute film. Yeah. Oh. That happens with a lot of the oh, sci-fi dear. stuff as well. Like, make it feature like D- Yes. Like- yeah, but we haven't really built a universe. Don't care. I want 90 minutes of Mama, because Guillermo del Toro liked it. Exactly. One guy built it using like Photoshop and After Effects, and they're like, feature film that shit. 
You use your law. We haven't got any. Make some up. There's a hat. It's evil. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of touched upon it there. You've got quite sort of different sections with the three kind of main haunts. I wonder if the pacing would necessarily gel together. And like I said, you've got the connective tissue of the the school things there. But wondering if the the strong vision of each director would kind of disorient viewers or something like that a little bit. Spielberg's like, keeping an eye on it. They want to be a little bit different. He's just greasing the wheels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, um, you know, give the audience something, uh, you know, a little bit of a different experience yeah, for each yeah. one. But Spielberg is there. Perhaps having his hand in a little bit too much, as he does tend to. In most is Spielberg projects. also directing the school scenes as well? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be Toby Hooper. Who can tell? <laughs> <laughs> I think, again, though, these people are tried and tested anthology people by this point and I think that that's another big thing is that you're working with directors who you know can work in this format right yeah yeah. none of them need to prove themselves (laughs) they've had much success on their own but also we know that they can they can do that and be part of that ensemble and that we don't have to worry about you know too many cooks spoiling the broth as it right yeah yeah just asking about the directors actually you've got obviously Spielberg has more or less directed a poltergeist film already so you know he kind of what he's bringing to the table and it makes sense to have romero you've got not quite a zombie horde in that one but similar so you know he kind of yeah. is works in that area what was it about landis and and the story you chose to kind of assign him that- uh, twilight zone the movie basically uh, it had that kind of slightly off kilter feel to it in all the segments which i felt yeah that's going to go well with this over to more ghosts vicar have a few questions for you gentlemen as well. Along similar lines, it's so weird that you've both both teams have chosen multiple <laughs> yeah. directors. Yeah, have we ever done that before? No, this is the no. first time anybody has done multiple and directors as far as I know. Both, both did it. Too spooky for me. But yeah. I mean, you know, we knowing the history of Poltergeist and that it's Yeah. <laughs> One of the directors two. is probably gonna be killed. We'll have a spare. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You have it, to choose between Spielberg and Kurosawa. I choose Kurosawa. I, how, no shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. how did I guess? So what was your thinking behind bringing Spielberg and Kurosawa together? And obviously you've got the Japanese influence. I assume mm. that's the direct, very yeah. obvious tie to Kurosawa. But mm. why Kurosawa? How do you think those two would work together? What In your mind, what is their working relationship to build this movie? Because you've got very separate segments in... In the other team's pitch, where you clearly have this is Romero's part, this is Spielberg's part, etc. Yeah. But what are the roles like in your mind, and how does that build to your movie having Spielberg and Kurosawa like co-directing, for want of a better phrase? To give you a bit of boring history, it's my favorite kind of history. Oh yeah, it's the only kind of history. <laughs> so basically, Kurosawa. A lot of directors, obviously, massive fans of Kurosawa. Spielberg being one of them. And when Kurosawa's career started flagging a bit. Spielberg and George Lucas helped fund a lot of stuff and get American producing money into his films. And after he did Kangamusha and Ran and things like that, and it started picking up again, thinking, oh, yes, this is an you know, acclaimed director. And he did Dreams in 1990, which is a strange segmented piece of short films, basically, of things that he dreamt. And they all feature basically him, effectively. And they're all really creepy and weird. Um, he descends into a volcano where he sees a, a demon and he sees a fox wedding. And because the cat, foxes catch him as a little boy, his mother sends him off to live with the foxes. And there's like a really crudely painted sort of rainbow in the distances he heads off. It's all very, and he sees a lot of dolls on shelves and goes to see them as actual large living dolls in a field. It's, it's all very eerie and strange and based on mythology and folklore and all that sort of stuff. 
So basically bringing that in, and I think Spielberg and Kurosawa are two directors who kind of would all, uh, very much mutual respect for each other by the by the 90s. And any excuse to work together, I think, would definitely be an equivalent thing. And so bringing them both on here, I think the way it would work on set would be that Spielberg would very much relate with the American cast and convey everything and pretty much helm a lot of it. And the way that Kurosawa would make films, he would paint a lot of the ideas of what he would eventually come to film. Literally paint them. Literally paint them, Oh, wow. And he would rehearse over and over and over and over, having an excuse to shoot anything, and then edit later. So I imagine it would be him almost storyboarding the film Spielberg interpreting and directing the film with him on board especially the, you know the, the Japanese imagery and all that stuff and and the, and the folklore mythology and and so on and then Spielberg would shoot it and Kurosawa would edit it there's very much a sort of harmony piece between them and on top of that we'd have the fact that we know there's a definite audience connection or would be an audience connection with Japanese ghosts and other things like with, with the grudge stuff and the ring things all, all adaptations almost straight adaptations of the original content from Japan I mean Japan wasn't even there yet but they were telling these kind of stories all the time so it's, a, it's been a thing that's around it's just moving that forward with a very strong two very strong directors helming the the procedure and pushing the visuals to something that just hasn't been seen in American cinema at that point in my opinion so imagining I'm now casting Akira Kurosawa as Hasegawa's grandfather. It's like Shit, I hadn't even put, thought about putting, that. That's a great idea. Putting him in... <laughs> fucking like, hell. He, him, his crazy dream starring him. And I was like, well, I'll just yeah. put him in the film. Then. I should have mentioned that considering like, it actually works in with dreams. Because in dreams he casts uh, Martin Scorsese as Vincent van Gogh. So uh, <laughs> that kind of works in a yeah, weird yeah. sort of... Sure, sure. History repeating itself kind of way. So it's a poltergeist movie. What's the connection to poltergeist? It felt a lot so disconnected it almost felt like a grudge or a ring or something completely unrelated so what what was the thinking behind it featuring it as a poltergeist in that franchise yeah i mean for the for the um our fellow team the plowshans team i think their one's very much a sequel and the, the start and the end is a sequel the, the content middle obviously got the, the the cutaway middle bit with the fact that it's um the freeling mother who's the only one present until the end and you realize it's more uh, connected with our one i think it's the it's, it would be fair to say it's the content that's more connected. So we stay with the idea of a haunted house, the burial ground, the connection, the... the, the it's a thematic connection. I think so, yeah. We did keep with the yeah. children in trouble yes. thing. That yes, was the, sorry, yes, yes. Because that's exactly. kind of the core of Poltergeist, yeah. isn't it? We have, we have the Will Wheaton's character as, as a you know child in yes. peril kind of element. And yes, that, that idea of a... It's, it's not a single ghost, it's a group of ghosts. And we're, you know, in the first film, it's a very... It's quite a straightforward thing of disturbed graves and here it's a more kind of complex issue of you know the the traumas visited upon japanese people during um internment and the box is is sort of relics um personal artifacts, personal yeah. artifacts and stuff from that that were taken away you know or, or, or sort of hidden away during the camps mm. um and so it's it's both of them are about tapping into that kind of sense of injustice in a sense you know the ghosts in poltergeist are angry that their graves have been disturbed it's that sort of similar the nightmares of real estate yes check where you're building your shit (laughs) (laughs) that's how it's a poltergeist film to us yeah i'd say it's very much a thematic sort of thing rather than a literal but i mean again that's why we don't do the whole maybe you guys did the exact same thing we don't call it poltergeist 2 thing we just call it poltergeist twilight as if to say we are moving on. This is a in the same vein because it's the same sort of haunting in a way. I mean, a bit more 
shining in places maybe but very similar kind of thing rather than a direct continuation of this specific story yeah, and i did feel that to be honest the characters from the first poltergeist weren't engaging enough for me to see again in any particular no, I think you guys depth. brought them back nicely because it makes sense because you say the whole argument bring back the children and saying that other families have been affected because this one thing i quite find interesting and then we got it in our story got it in your story as well while you could have so many different interpretations of law for various monsters and things ghosts and ghost stories inherently in almost all cultures people sitting around telling stories that seems to be something we as a species seem to do a lot and it's always almost always to do with the dead or ghosts and things like that so i find that quite fascinating and we've done it in our sort of like very very japanese style i can't remember the actual name of the game but where you'd light all the lanterns and go back in the room and step out slowly and you could literally have it in the in the round table not the round table, the, the sort of group counseling discussion in a way it's still sitting around a fire effectively telling ghost stories so i think yeah there's an, an interesting link there that seems to be inherent within what ghost stories could and should be and also the strong family link in poltergeist exactly that's what it's about correct yeah what the second one's about and what they try and make the third one about but all the actors had gone yeah yeah, yeah completely completely and lastly tim you just kind of mentioned it the ending that ties together you touched upon the kind of horrors of what happened to the japanese in america and mm. in world war Two and things like that i don't know if it was a bit on the nose i felt there was enough that you touched upon in the film that you didn't necessarily need the kind of statistics at the end there. It felt well, actually not quite preachy, but something along those kind of lines. It felt like it went maybe a, a bit on the nose there at the end there. But was that a conscious decision to really hit home I at think, the end there? You know, at, at the time, you know, we're, we're, we're having this filmed in 1990. It was only two years ago then, in 1988, that Reagan had issued this official apology saying, you know, yeah, we really fucked up there. That was an awful horrible time of hysteria and racism so i think you know as much as we touch on it in the film i think it's worth having that little thing just to underline this is all true uh you know well not so much with the possession foxes <laughs> but the but the tragedies you know and the the issues that they discuss you know these are you know real people lost their lives lost their livelihoods you know uh and i think it's almost very much a, a spielberg thing if you look at for better examples, Schindler's List, Munich, things that are saying, we're going to make a point here and we're going to say it for future generations who watch this film. Because at one point, Spielberg seems to realise, or maybe always realise, film hangs around and will always become relevant again and saying some things. So again, again, maybe Munich is one of the better examples because it does give a load of statistics and things because it is a 2005 film, I think I want to say, based on an event that took place decades ago. So obviously we're reminding people, but also reminding future audience members and future viewers, this shit can't keep going on. We can't be doing the same mistakes over and over. And I think that's... He, he's he's stepping away from being f- big blockbuster, high-fashion stuff. And he's still doing like that to do Jurassic Park and Hook, for fuck's sake. <laughs> but he then is going to start doing more of these very somber, very aware pieces and like Saving Private Ryan and things like that. It, it, it's sort of a, a man becoming older as a director or a director going on, fuck the gender doesn't make a difference there. But a, a person becoming older as a director and thinking, I need to use this medium to say something. So yeah, it's a bit on the nose and there's a bit, you know, uh, message heavy, but I think it probably needed to be. Yeah. Spielberg is not known for subtlety. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hence all the father relationships we put in this fucking thing. Yeah. Oh, God, I've got I drawn that parallel, but you're right, yeah. It was a weird parallel with the mirrors for you guys. That's something you both kept. Yeah. Creepy reflections and evil mirrors and stuff, which is obviously... 
we've got the the father relationship in ours is in the Spielberg segment as well because you, you just if <laughs> it's Spielberg, Spielberg it's gonna be yeah. people talking over each other maybe kids on bicycles if possible well, yeah yeah and the, they're either going to be strong father relationship or no father at all yep hence Jurassic Park <laughs> yes I guess it's time for me to render my decision once again. The witching hour is upon us. <laughs> Quite. The hour of the wolf. Quite, yeah, yeah. I really enjoy both pitches. I'm, I'm not much of a horror guy, which is a problem when we're going through all these kind of <laughs> exorcist and podcasts. Like Stuart was listing off all these 80s anthology horror films I've never fucking heard of. <laughs> I'm now kind of intrigued to go and check them out, though. You want the British ones from the 70s? Uh, interesting ideas were often badly put together, but the 80s ones <laughs> do not want the American it. ones. Okay. Mm. So it swaps from Brits to Americans. Yeah. And then the 90s, there aren't really any. So that's yeah. a job. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I really liked what you guys did with the different directors coming in and bringing a different flavour to each part. And I love that just how inherently creepy David Cronenberg would be just <laughs> lurking in the corner, just being... Yeah. That's from Nightbreed. He plays a character called Dr. Decker, ah. where he goes a little bit over top and has a rubber mask with button eyes, and he's all evil. Oh, but but far yeah. more effective is when he's just being his creepy, oily I was going to say, man. yeah. Tell me about your children. Yes. <laughs> he's just a naturally creepy, oily man anyway, so I think it would work really well. And I like the twist that they're in on it, and it's almost like this you're a charlatan, fuck you kind of moment, and, and that's a nice twist. And Because I, w- I was waiting, as soon as you introduced him, I was like, okay, yeah, he's a creep, he's going to do something horrible. And I didn't see the twist coming where they were all in on it, and had, had kind of, so I really liked that moment at the end there. They're like, oh, here's Craig T. Nelson, <laughs> Stephen Freeling, and Tangina, goodbye. <laughs> I really like what more Ghost Vicar you guys did with Keeping with the theme of the haunted house, I uh, liked the the mixture of cultures as well. I thought it was an interesting way of because Japan is so steeped in that horror. I, I mentioned Junji Ito earlier on in this episode, and manga and Japanese cinema is so t- heavily tied into the horror genre. I think that works really well as a kind of a thematic loop of bringing those two cultures together and having a huge important Japanese director work with an American director and. And have almost like this weird American-Japanese hybrid horror film that kind of meshes the two together. And I think that that worked really well. But I do have to pick a winner for each episode, as hard as it may be sometimes. And like I said, I like both, and I'm not much of a horror guy, so I feel like I'm not really in a good position to judge <laughs> this. I'm just like, I don't know good horror films from bad horror films, but I'm going to render a decision anyway. And I believe the winners for this episode are going to be... I ain't afraid of no geist. Congratulations, gentlemen. I really like the anthology idea. Like I said, I'm not particularly familiar with horror anthology, so I was like, wow, that's a cool, hip new just, idea. Just like, a, nope. No, it's a way to get <laughs> short films out there, basically. If not, they're never seen. Yeah, I really, really liked, like I said, bringing on Romero and Landis as an inspired choice, and I think the three of them, now knowing that they have anthology experience as well, I thought was an interesting... Because as soon as you said that, my first hang-up was oh, okay, are they going to work together? And then you guys very quickly were like, actually, most of them have worked together with each other. They know each other. They've done anthologies before. It will all make sense, we promise. And I was like, okay, cool. And I love the twist at the end. I thought it was a really, really nice touch to have Chalice not get his own way and, and be this creepy lurker, but not actually you know, get away yeah, with it. I think the way they would probably have done it at the time is, at the end, everything would run well. Send your children to me for the weekend. Then he looks in the camera and his eyes had gone red and he gone. 
<laughs> yeah, and then it would have ended. It's the thriller <laughs> ending yeah, where he just turns to camera yeah. and evil eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I like I liked the twist, and I like that you have these seemingly normal families suddenly turn around mm-hmm. and be like, "No, you're a creep, and we're protecting our children from you all mm-hmm. along." You Mwah. are the beast, maybe. Which again reminds me of that um, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing where the parents all rally together to to burn the pedo in sequels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, originally that's how I had the ending almost. Oh shit! Yeah, originally I had it so that Chalice was actually innocent, and oh, the um, and just they'd all got paranoid from all this supernatural oh, shit, yeah, and they were stuff. literally going to stab him with something. These ends like innocent. One of the things that yeah, I think he probably is, but you can't take the chance. Let's give it. A- <laughs> and, you know. Wow. But then I was like. Dark. That's not Poltergeist, because Poltergeist is much lighter. It's yeah. sort of PG-13, 80, so that's, no, that's that's like some late 90s shit. So um, that was Alec, actually, who... Uh, yeah, I, I, I read it, and I was like, this is all fine. I have issues with this. <laughs> yeah. so three words for enough. you. Just, just a little bit of an edit. Um, it's burn the pedo. I don't know if just sprinkle that in there somewhere. That's the Alec Plowman touch right there. So congratulations, gentlemen. Well done. You are... Ahead mm. in series three now. It's heating up, lads. It is. Yeah. It is getting competitive. It's a. Uh, it's all to play for in season three. This will fly in the following location. Matt's <laughs> <laughs> <That> house. <gasps> so, where will we be back next week? With something that's very near and dear to my heart, and Tim actually mentioned it on our best sequels episode. We're not, of course, we're not fixing Spider-Man Two because that's a bloody masterpiece. Mm. We're fixing the mess. That is Spider-Man 3. Oh, cool. Lord. Oh, yes. Emo Peter Parker, 15 different villains. <laughs> Let's see what you guys can come up with. Sam Raimi pushed to the very <laughs> limits after like five years of non-stop making Spider-Man movies. Hear me out. Emo Peter Parker from start to finish and 22 villains. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Count each me. consecutive film, they retcon Uncle Ben's death a bit more. A little bit more. So it's Mysterio yeah. actually shooting him and Sandman forcing him into it. And yeah. then it just goes on to it's a chain of over 912 Marvel villains. <laughs> It's a. It's ours. Is going to be an anthology piece. It's called Twenty Two Short Films About Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Ben basically shoots himself, and, it's all, it's all just and then becomes Spider Man. <laughs> it's Groundhog Day with Uncle Ben, and he just has to kill himself at the end. <laughs> then he wakes up again. No. I'm. I'm so tired, Peter. I'm so tired. <laughs> so we're we'll back next week to fix Spider Man Three. Good Lord. Spider-Man with a vengeance. Spider-Man harder. Spider-Man <laughs> with a vengeance. <laughs> live, live, three, live free or spider hard. Hey. <laughs> so see you then, folks. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Thwip, whip. Snicked. Oh, pulling the Wolverine in the film. Oh, Interesting. Smash. Batman. Oh, shit, Batman. <laughs> a Batman. That's the noise he makes. Put a ghost in there. Oh, <laughs> talk. How you all turned your uh, Superman things into like, here's a Batman. Here's <laughs> yeah. like, Batman.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.